0: Draw your attention this morning to the Gospel of Matthew and its second chapter, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Jesus, therefore, was born before the death of King Herod, which is reliably uh, dated to 4 B.C. It wasn't until the year 533 that Dionysius Exicuus, a a name that is much more impressive in Latin than in English, it would be Dennis the Short, (laughs) proposed to reckon years from the birth of Christ instead of from the founding of Rome. By that time, of course, it was easy to mistake the year of the Lord's birth, and this is what, in fact, had happened. Wise men, or magi, refers generally to astrologers and magicians, important court officials in almost all countries of Western Asia in that time. They were what we would today call uh, call government advisors. Since the Babylonian exile, there were many Jews in those eastern lands And it would not be unlikely, actually, that the Magi would know something about Jewish belief and about the expectation of a Messiah. As we now learn, they expected not just to find any king, but the king of the Jews. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose... And have come to worship him. You're no doubt aware that several different astronomical possibilities have been suggested as an explanation of this star. For example, the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation Pisces in the years 7 and 6 BC. Or even uh, Halley's Comet in the years 12 and 11 BC. None of these explanations carries conviction, however... And Matthew obviously understood the movement of this star to be uh, something supernatural. The Magi probably assumed that the king would have been born in the capital, and so they went to Jerusalem first. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod was a man who would have been troubled by any report of a possible pretender to his throne. He was a Roman appointee, not a Jew, and he always felt vulnerable to the claims of a king of true Davidic descent. By the end of his life, he had also become seriously paranoid. Uh, He had already had two of his own sons executed for fear that they planned a coup. So the fear of all Jerusalem may have been a fear of what Herod would do when he was in a rage. He was careless of human life. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, The priests and the scribes, the doctors of the Jewish scriptures, would be the natural ones to consult, but the answer to their question was actually very simple. Any Jewish schoolboy could have provided it. The fact that Jesus was from Nazareth, but that he was born in Bethlehem makes the fact even more striking as a demonstration of his messianic credentials. Why would a boy from, why would a child from Nazareth? a tiny village in Galilee, be born in Bethlehem, a tiny village in Judea. It's important to observe in any case that the revelation of nature could not take the Magi all the way to Jesus Christ. They needed what had been revealed in Holy Scripture to get all the way to him. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them What time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. As subsequent events will prove, Herod had no intention of worshiping the child. He wanted to kill him, and so remove the threat to his regime. Rather than send soldiers whose presence might tip his hand, he had no particular reason to doubt, that these magi would do what he had asked. As Bishop Hall, the 17th century Anglican, says in his reflections on this history, there is no villainy so great that it will not mask itself under a show of piety. (laughs) We're having some trouble here. Do you want to go off of this and onto this? Okay. We're picking up to read at um, verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The presence and movement of the star delighted them because it proved that they were still being led on this mission by "...a supernatural hand, and that they would certainly find the king they had come so far to see. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh." Those were gifts for a king. If you remember, the Queen of Sheba had given the same gifts to King Solomon a millennium before. The idea, by the way, that there were three wise men or three magi uh, comes, as you know, from the fact that there were three gifts given. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Interpreting dreams was part of the world in which these men lived and worked. That God used that means doesn't imply that he approved of their practices of divination or that they were ordinarily reliable as predictors of the future. He was simply meeting these men where they were. Our Father in Heaven, we have before us a famous text, but when we stop to ponder, it's not entirely obvious why this particular story was recorded for us, in the Gospel of Matthew, and not any number of others regarding the Lord's infancy and, and childhood that we would love to have had reported to us. So what is the great message of this history? No doubt there are several. Teach us from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There are those, of course, who imagine that this account is simply a pious legend with no basis in fact. However, like so much else of the Christmas history, it is not only written as history, it's not only intended to be taken as history, very obviously, its historical character lies on its face. Eastern magi made trips like these. We know that from other material. There's an interesting parallel to this occurrence reported in the Roman histories of Dio Cassio and of Suetonius, uh, when Eastern Magi came to visit uh, Emperor Nero in AD 66. There is even evidence in Persian materials that Eastern Magi had a particular interest in the events in Palestine. No doubt that was in part because of the number of Jews that still lived in their countries. King Herod here is certainly the Herod of history. He's precisely the Herod we know from other information. What is more, and perhaps more interesting, this is a story the church would scarcely have thought to invent since it had no sympathy for magicians or astrologers. And here they are, nevertheless, presented in a very favorable light. What we have here, in other words, is an account of what had happened, surprising as this event was. But it has also long been observed that the narrative of the Lord's birth is both history and meta-history. That is, it is paradigmatic in the same way that other historical narratives are paradigmatic. Such as those we have been considering recently from the first book of of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Again and again as we made our way through the history of Genesis, we observed that the history itself and all the more the way that history was written laid bare fundamental principles of human life and of the salvation of God. And again and again, the principles and patterns of the working of God's grace in the lives of human beings were revealed in the events that were being reported. It shouldn't surprise us, really. God has always been the same. Human nature and sin has always been the same. God's salvation has always been the same. The world as a moral, spiritual milieu has always been the same. For that reason, whenever, at whatever time we enter the story of God's dealings with men and women in grace or in judgment, we find the same principles in operation. Yesterday, today, and forever. Reality is one. And so the perfect record of that reality will be one as well. So what was true in Genesis is true of the narrative of the Lord's birth. Again and again, the events of the Christmas narrative lay bare the nature of life and the nature of salvation. For example, John tells us in his first chapter that the birth of Jesus, its supernatural character, its accomplishment by the Holy Spirit, is paradigmatic. That history reveals more than just itself. It serves also to disclose the manner of the new birth, the nature of the new birth, this supernatural new beginning that the Holy Spirit creates in and for every believer in Jesus Christ at whatever point in life that person, he or she, becomes a believer in Christ. Comparing John 1. With John 3, we learn that not only the Lord Jesus Christ, but every believer in Christ is born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. In another case, the cast of insignificant characters in the Christmas history serves as a foretaste of the composition of the church herself, which, as Paul reminded the Corinthians, includes not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Consider as well the place of waiting, which is a feature commented on several times in the Christmas narratives. Jesus was born 2,000 years after Abraham, 400 years after the last prophet had revealed the will of God to the Jews. And near the very end of the long lives of both Simeon and Anna, who had been waiting decades for the consolation of Israel. Here we are, you and I, 2,000 years later, still waiting for the Lord's second coming. Very little happens at once in the Christian life. It is one of the most difficult lessons to learn and one of the most important. So it is truth laid bare again and again and again in the biblical history. Or see how the necessity of faith is emphasized in this narrative. Only a few were visited by angels, none of them a person of consequence in that time and place. The angels didn't appear to King Herod, or to Quirinius the governor, or to Augustus the emperor. They appeared to a minor priest who lived in a country village and only rarely was able to come to the capital to serve in the temple. They appeared to a young couple who lived in a tiny backwater in Galilee. They appeared to some shepherds, a lowly occupation in those days, on a hillside near Bethlehem. It would have been, it proved to be, the simplest matter to ignore or to discredit the report of people like that. Pagan critics would later mock the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead as the rantings of a hysterical female, Mary Magdalene. None of the events that form the backbone of this history was witnessed by anyone of consequence or by any significant number of people. Our faith rests on testimony, eyewitness testimony indeed, but for almost all Christians, that testimony must be taken on faith. So few have ever seen these things coming to pass. There are very good reasons to believe that testimony. More reasons to trust it than to doubt it. But nevertheless, it must be believed. None of us was there. None of us saw or heard an angel. And so with every aspect of our faith. True enough, the doubters and the unbelievers must rest their doubt and their unbelief on faith as well. More faith than is required of us, indeed. But we should never forget that the nature of, of the gospel invitation is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is everywhere the case in the history of the Bible, as it is here. The great events were always witnessed by only a few. Then they were believed by immense multitudes. But there is still another window opened in this history on the reality of human life. And the kingdom of God, and I'm speaking of the way in which human beings encounter the gospel, the good news of Christ and salvation. Just as the events themselves are paradigmatic, the power of God by his spirit invading human life, the secret working of God in the lives of human beings, the reliability of biblical prophecy, the existence of the spiritual kingdom of angels and demons, and so on. Equally paradigmatic are the responses of human beings to this mighty work of God. Every sort of human response to the gospel, the good news of God's coming into the world as a man to live and die for our salvation, the responses that human beings have been making to the news of the coming of the Son of God through the ages ever since, every one of them is here in this historical narrative. Any honest man or woman willing to, To reckon with his or her own relationship to this history or to the claims of the gospel can find himself or find herself in these narratives. In this way too, history and theology, history and faith, history and reality converge. The gospel is an appeal. It's an invitation. It's a summons. And people respond to that invitation and that summons in very different ways. They always have. They always will. There have always been those who for one reason or another, insecurity, the fear of what others will think, the fear of the implications of that message for one's life, or for pride, taking offense at the thought that he or she should be in such desperate need of, serv- of salvation or a salvation that should require such stupendous things to achieve, or a visceral hatred for the principles of the Christian faith, or for Christians themselves. I say there have always been those who have despised the Christian message when they heard it, and have despised those who proclaim it, and those who live according to it. We have witnessed in recent years in America an uptick in the number of people who were willing publicly to number themselves among the despisers of the Christian faith. The so-called new atheists have, for example, made no bones about their opinion that the Christian faith is a bacillus, a virus, a germ, infecting the body of Western civilization, that it is harmful to society, that it stands in the way of human progress, that it appeals only to the uneducated or the morally defective. We've had prominent academics suggest that Christians should be prevented from teaching their faith to their children. That's the position communist states once took, and some still take today. We know, of course, that Christians aren't the only ones persecuted in the world. There are a great many people who genuinely hate other people and wish them harm for a variety of reasons, religious, racial, economic, sexual, political, and so on. The readiness of the human heart to hate is a sad, one of the saddest facts of life in this world. And it is so that there have always been those whose response to the gospel, therefore, however they hear it, is one of immediate and visceral repudiation. King Herod, represents the class, that class of people in this narrative. There was no thoughtful weighing of evidence in his mind. He didn't stop to ask if there might be some credible reason why these educated and influential men from the East should make such a long journey to offer their gifts to the newborn king of the Jews. He didn't bother to ask how they knew that the star was a sign of his birth. He didn't wonder whether they knew something he didn't. He didn't consult the Jewish theologians to inquire precisely who and what such a king might be and what his arrival might portend for the world. Herod was a king himself, to be sure, but he knew very well that he was a minor king, a client king. The distance between himself and the emperor of Rome was immense. The idea that there might be another king. Even a king of kings was hardly impossible for Herod to fathom. But Herod no, had no intention of taking the Magi seriously. His mind was closed. His heart was hard. The only thing he care, uh, cared about was destroying a potential rival. He had no interest otherwise in the news the Magi had brought. He wanted only to preserve the world as he knew it and himself in that world. His response may have been irrational, but it was no less ferocious for that there have always been such people and there are plenty of them in the world today <coughs> then there is a much larger <coughs> excuse me a much larger class of people who don't have such strong feelings about the gospel message they simply can't be bothered they're comfortable in the mental universe they have created for themselves or have imbibed without thought from the culture around them. They're uninterested in higher things. They hardly ever think about them. The great questions of life lie unanswered, uninvestigated, filed away in the recesses of the mind. They have some philosophy of life, to be sure everyone does, even if it's hardly ever articulated and never seriously thought through and certainly never justified. But they don't care much about it either. They live for the present. They are largely untouched by the great issues of human existence. The priests and the scribes and the population of Jerusalem represent various stages and degrees of this disinterest. We read in verse 3 that many people in the capital heard the report of the Magi and that many were troubled. But though we might well have expected that the road between Jerusalem and Bethlehem would soon be crowded with pilgrims determined to see for themselves whether a new king had been born, no one bothered to make the trip. No matter that Bethlehem was only six miles south of the capital, a mere stroll for people in that time and place. The priests and the scribes would have said, of course, that they were looking for the Messiah, awaiting the fulfillment of the prophecies of his coming, that had been made so frequently in the ancient prophets. They certainly knew the theoretical answer to the Magi's question, but in actual uh, actual fact, they were a self-satisfied bunch. There have been many so-called Christians like them ever since. The prospect of the Messiah's coming was more important to them as a theological idea than it was as a living hope or an expectation. These men, 30 years later, would become overtly hostile, as Herod had been, when Jesus exploded on the scene as a captivating teacher and a worker of miracles, and more important, as a rival to their place as leaders of the people. Once threatened, the claws came out. But for the moment, they did not feel threatened by the mere report, and they couldn't be bothered. And so it was of the people in Jerusalem in general. The news of the Magi's arrival and their question, no doubt, circulated quickly through the streets and the squares and the taverns of the the city. But so far as we can tell, people were more worried about Herod's reaction than about whether or not the report might actually be true. How, like so many people, put the great questions of life to them and they will quickly demonstrate how little they have thought about them how incapable of providing serious, thoughtful answers to them. When the gospel is addressed to them, they they answer not with serious objections or probing questions, but with a yawn. Their attention quickly passes to other things. They are more interested in the evening's next installment of their favorite TV show than they are in whether or not eternal life is a real possibility for human beings. Hannah Arendt famously described the horrors of the Nazi brutalization and wholesale murder of the the Jews and other undesirables as the banality of evil because these terrible crimes were condemned by such otherwise ordinary folk, people like other people, normal people, we might say. But here is the true banality of evil at its foundation, People who can't be stirred even to care about the great issues of human life. Blaise Pascal famously proposed a wager to such people. Should they not bet on the Christian faith rather than against it? For the simple reason that if the Christian faith is true, everything hangs in the balance. Everything depends upon a person's belief and following him, following Jesus, If it is false, the Christian faith, no one is the worse off. But if it is true, the unbeliever has lost everything. But the wager requires people to care about the future. And in the dullness of the sinful human heart, genuine concern is always in short supply. Surely there are great multitudes of human beings who can find themselves in Matthew chapter 2 verse 3. But finally, there are the Magi themselves. How they came to know that the star pointed the way to the king of the Jews, we do not know. It is likely, all the evidence being taken together, that they knew a good bit about Jewish Messianic hope, and maybe they received information in a dream, as many Muslims have today, concerning Jesus Christ And salvation in him. They certainly seem to have understood that this was no ordinary client king they were traveling to meet and to worship. They'd never made such a trip to visit Herod or to honor him. Somehow, in some way, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he was the Savior of the world. What else explains the trouble they took? To find him. After all, they were Gentiles, not Jews. As king of the Jews, Jesus would have been of importance to them only if he were more than simply the king of the Jews. But they knew enough to care, and they were certainly determined to find out. They knew enough to realize that if Jesus was what they believed him to be, he was more important to them than anything else in their life at that moment. It was for that reason they left home. They traveled hundreds of miles bearing expensive gifts to meet and to bow down before this infant king. The Magi had never done anything like what Herod had done for the Church of God. Herod, who had invested enormous sums of money to rebuild in large and to make magnificent again the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't make the same show of piety that the priests and the scribes were always making. They were astrologers, for goodness sake, an occupation forbidden in the law of Moses. But they believed, and they obeyed, and they worshipped the infant Lord from their hearts. The Magi are the true believers. They are the real Christians in this narrative. And so it has been ever since, hundreds and then thousands and then millions and then millions upon millions of people who by the grace of God heard the gospel, in their hearing realized that Jesus Christ is indeed the King of kings and the Savior of the world, and believed in him for themselves and began to follow him as their Lord and Master. Let me illustrate this with one of my favorite stories from the history of Christian missions. More history of the proclamation of the gospel to Gentiles, such as were these Magi, these wise men. Henry Martin was one of the great early heroes of the missionary enterprise that began in the early years of the 19th century. He was perhaps the brightest light in that galaxy of young Cambridge men who were nurtured on the ministry of Charles Simeon when they were students at the university. After serving as Simeon's assistant for two years, Martin went to India. Served there only five years, but such was his erudition and such was his skill in acquiring languages that though knowing nothing of the language when he arrived, within those five years he produced a valuable translation of the New Testament in Hindi. Returning to Britain to recruit more missionaries, to recover his failing health, And he hoped to marry the young woman he loved and had left behind. He traveled across country through Persia. There he paused for a year, worked on a Persian translation of the Bible, and engaged in apologetics and evangelism among the Muslim doctors of theology. Continuing homeward, he made it only as far as what is today Turkey, and it was there that he died. While he was in India... Working in the town of Kanpur, the very city where Frank and Esther File, our own missionaries, worked for some 40 years, Henry Martin would often gather a crowd around his front stoop, usually mostly beggars, and tell them about Jesus Christ who had visited the world years before and would someday come to it again. One day, as it happened, an Indian court official happened to notice what was happening and stopped to listen. He was prepared to mock and to deride. But wholly unknown to Henry Martin, the words he heard that day about Jesus Christ, God the Son, and how he had brought salvation for those who trust in him, took root in his heart. And soon thereafter, he had become a Christian himself. After Martin had left India, he presented himself for baptism, which was a daring thing for Hindus to do in those days. And then he gave up his large income and his prestigious political position for that of a catechist, the bottom rung of church worker in the Church of England. Eventually, he was ordained as an Anglican priest. He was Henry Martin's only Indian convert, so far as anyone knows, and Martin himself never met the man or knew of his conversion. Bishop Reginald Heber, the Anglican missionary statesman in those early days of the Christian mission in India, the author of the hymns Holy, 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 and the Son of God Goes Forth to War, in his Indian journal, wrote of meeting this man, a man who had taken at his baptism a new name, Abdul Messiah. A servant of the Messiah. Heber, a very devout Christian himself, wrote of how impressed he was with this man's noble Christian character. Here he was like the Magi, a Gentile born and raised in a land far removed from the church of God, in a land where there were few followers of Jesus Christ, but he heard of the Messiah. And he responded not in indifference and not in fear of possible consequences of which there were any number, but in submission with a grateful and cheerful trust and love and worship. How happy he was to have heard the good news. How happy the Magi were. See how happy they are there in verse 10. And how happy, happy beyond words, He must be now, having sat down at the feast in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, my friends, why was this history written? Well, here is one primary reason why it was recorded in the Word of God. It poses a challenge to all of us. Among which group of people do we find ourselves? The priests and the folk in Jerusalem? Herod the king or the magi? They represent the options, really the only options. Hostility, indifference, belief, real belief, the kind of belief that changes a person's life, changes his or her behavior, commitments, everything. To which company do you belong? Answer my question. In the quiet of your own heart, to which question, to which company do you belong? Think of this happy thought. If, like the Magi, you believe in and you worship Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and Master, someday you will be able yourself to ask the Magi how it was they learned that that star was going to lead them to the King of Kings. Amen.